0: Hello, and uh, welcome again to On Tap. This is Sarah Bae Jung, and I'm here today with a very special episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Anthony Sargent, currently CEO of Toronto's own Luminato Festival. Uh, he's very graciously agreed to spend an afternoon sort of chatting with me for a few moments and I thought this might be uh, an interesting time for for many of us to think about how arts organizations especially those that operate in festivals and live arts uh, like Luminato and other similar performing arts festivals are dealing with the COVID crisis and thinking about the future and what better person to do this than uh, than Anthony so thank you very much for for joining me this afternoon I'm really grateful and I'm I'm wondering to just kind of get us started off if you could talk a little bit about how you came to Luminato in Toronto and and what your preparations were bef- before you uh, before you arrived here.
1: Yes, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for welcoming me for this. I mean, my it's funny my um, my academic degree is a politics, philosophy, and economics from from Oxford University, and I was thinking as we were talking about this that. <clears throat> probably what we're going to talk about in respect of, of Covid is going to be as much about anthropology as it's going to be about the others. Um, I So I, I left, uh, I, I did that wonderful stint, five years I spent at Oxford uh, doing a lot of other music and stuff as well. Then I spent 15 uh, amazing years in the BBC um, doing a variety of things, pr- production and presentation for radio and television. Uh, I spent a little while in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and I also spent a terrific time in the BBC special current affairs unit doing, you know, really, uh, they do the very particular sort of sharp, leading edge current affairs, the sort of thinking end of the current affairs spectrum, rather than the, the journalistic end, if I can put it like that.
0: Theatre and performance of a different sort, I guess.
1: Yes, yes. And then um, then I ended up the BBC as uh, head of planning for the BBC Proms, which is a wonderful eight week classical music series in an enormous, uh, huge 8,000 seater hall in central London, Uh, And I spent five years doing that, which was enormous fun. Then I went to what is in effect in Britain, the the National Arts Centre. It's the South Bank Centre in London, dead across the river from the, the Houses of Parliament. And I was Director of Artistic Projects there, which was a sort of guerrilla job in a way. It was... Uh, it was the job that was about doing all the uh, imaginative and slightly off the wall and left field stuff that the conventional commercial procedures of of Central London would not have produced so i love that
0: what was uh, the, well, what I'll was be, something that you did there like what give me get, well, what's we an did, example no, of things no, that
1: I'll, you, happened i'll absolutely tell you i mean I, initially we started doing quite conventional things we did a, a well it's quite conventional we did a, a, i think still in, to this day it's the only time it's been done we presented the complete works of the viennese composer arnold schoenberg um and it's quite i mean it, it some of it's quite forbidding stuff uh, but amazingly we got a decent audience for it we did his complete works i think the only time it's been done but then a little bit later on i got a bit wilder after that so then we did a festival of new circus which was then I mean, it's become familiar now and in the in the way the world of people like Cirque du Soleil have taken it up. But in those days, this is we're talking the 1980s here, uh, it was really, you know, it, circuses were still lions and tigers. And suddenly you had a kind of circus that was, uh, there was chaos from France, in which they were princip- almost entirely on motorbikes and mostly mm-hmm. using chain live chainsaws, real, real chainsaws. Uh, and then other very extraordinary magical kinds of, of new circus, which created the world out of which things like Cirque du Soleil grew and then we did a festival of of world street music on the roofs of the buildings and we built the sort of roughest corrugated iron shanty town you could imagine on the roofs of these (laughs) these heritage buildings and we brought street musicians from all over the world for that so that was you know that was that sounds like it it
0: must have been quite an exciting time and what I mean programming that must have taken you all over the place.
1: It did, and also what I loved about it was, um, I mean, it's a much more complicated and different story, but I'll tell it in a very, very abbreviated way. So the Southbank Arts Centre, as it then was, and it had the National Theatre adjacent to it and the Hayward Gallery and the National Film Theatre, so it's a very very particular and special centre of, of culture in London. But it had always been a centre of classical culture, and it had been run by the city government in London, the Greater London Authority, as it was then called, um, and for all kinds of political reasons, uh, which you may remember, people in your in your fraternity who who have noticed British politics will remember this: that in the nineteen eighties, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister, did some pretty spectacularly um, venomous and. What's the right? I think the right adjective for it. I mean, the things that were very much about settling scores, mm. and there was the famous the miners' strike. But the the one that's perhaps less well known is she dynamited in in a moment, in a day, all the city governments in the UK because they were uh, as, as rightly actually regarded as largely left leaning. Uh, so she just took them all out in one go and they were all replaced by other bodies which, which she hoped would be more uh, more right-thinking as she would have had it. Uh, and so the consequence of that was here was an international arts centre in the centre of London, <coughs> which had been run by a city government that literally one morning didn't exist anymore. Yeah. And it was taken over by the Arts Council of Great Britain and everybody feared... That this was just going to it was going to become a temple of high culture instead of the rather wonderfully and inspiringly accessible campus that it had become under the local government. So in a way, my job was sort of defined by that polarity. <clears throat> my job was about making sure that it did not become just a home of Beethoven and Schiller and uh, and Goethe and uh, you know it, it became a real sense of. Vivid contemporary cultural energy to which the local, to which the, the, the contemporary population in London, particularly the young and diverse population, could respond. So, uh, in a way, I, my job was created to to bring in that kind of guerrilla energy, and I spent I was only five years, but I loved it. And then I went just I went to the um, centre of uh, the English Midlands, the city of Birmingham, for 10 years as head of culture for the city council. So I did 10 years working in local government, which was enormously helpful when I came here. And then the last 15 years before I came here, I set up and created and ran for its first 15 years a wonderful uh, international centre for music learning and performance. So I, you know, I... I have a little bit of a background in, in cultural education from yeah. that, uh, designed by Norman Foster and a very wonderful building on the banks of the River Tyne in the Northeast. So in a funny way, I think, I mean, when I was rang up and asked to come and do this job in Toronto, I think people looked at my background and thought he's probably got most of the experience and skills that he could possibly need in this job.
0: And how have you found it uh, being at Luminato and, and what's the experience been like over the last five years?
1: Well, I've I've loved it. I mean, I've, I mean I'm actually as is, is, is in the public domain now. I'm, I'm finishing at the end of my five year and returning to the UK. But I just but I, saw I, that. The, yes. <laughs> no, but there's nothing a, negative in that. I mean, it's it's a partly a family thing. My family are mostly in the UK, but um, it's no. I've absolutely loved it, and I've loved it because I took it over at quite a quite a defining moment in terms of the history of its funding and all of those things and. It's a, I mean it's an interesting story because uh, we cancelled this year's edition because uh, of the coronavirus and because of the I mean essentially two things killed it in Canada. One was the uh, ban on international travel and the other was ban on gatherings of anything more than like three and a half people. So um, it under those two circ- with those two restrictions, it was clearly it's impossible to run an international arts festival. So we cancelled it. And ironically, the birth of the festival in 2007 uh, was. It was done exactly as all... I mean, I may talk about this in a second, but all those festivals that grew out of the Second World War, uh, Luminato grew out of the experience of SARS in Toronto. I, people in Europe don't... I don't know this story at all. The, the, in Europe, you have a vision of SARS as having been a Southeast Asian phenomenon. Uh, and mostly it was, but there was a very small number of other cities in the world ravaged by it, and Toronto was one of those. And the Luminati Festival was created to, to as it were, lead, one of the things that would lead the city out of that darkness. And the consequence of that, or is that a direct consequence? The corollaries, that's better than calling it a consequence, um, was that it was created by two business leaders. It wasn't created by an arts leader in a conventional way. And typically arts festivals grow up over time and, and they build and build. This was given... A, a, Actually I have to say really an eye watering sum of money from the province of uh, of Ontario it was given 15 million dollars to start not for one year but it was money designed to enable it to 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 launch fully fledged as it were to make an impact on the on the world in day one and to be an emblem for a reborn Toronto straight out of the gate now there's the good things in that obviously if you get a decent amount of resource right at the start so you can build up all your fundraising and all your ticket revenues and all those things over time but you've got a decent money in the bank to start with that's great from a planning point of view but you can imagine there is a very real negative quality to that uh, which is that there were all kinds of wonderful arts organizations in Toronto and Ontario who had been seeking to raise money from government for developments and for initiatives of one kind and another you know mostly much smaller sums than that and they were I mean, I think it's not, you know, I'm not telling tales out of school here. They were absolutely aghast by that. I, the, the two big visual arts institutions in Toronto, the, arts Gallery of, the Art Gallery of Ontario and the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, which are two great pillars of the, of the cultural fabric in Toronto, and their directors, they both told me this story, so I believe it to be true. They were having breakfast together one morning when this news broke. And they had both been trying to get from Ontario quite modest sums to do quite modest things, and suddenly, this colossal sum of money was given to to uh, Janice Price to lead it, and she was terrific. But she was a real take no prisoners um, marketing kind of you know she was br- brilliant and got it going in great style. But the combination of these two business leaders plus this very um, very rather strident and a very forceful CEO. Uh, meant that it made an almost unimaginable number of enemies very quickly. And it was, you know, so when I came 10 years later or nine years later, um, that was still in the water. I mean, it was still, there was still a feeling of smoldering resentment that This festival had been launched with this eye-watering sum of money without any reference to the local cultural
0: fabric at all. And is that so informed why? how of how sort of how you've because Can my I, my sense that that Luminato has actually done quite a bit in terms of engaging local uh, and regional and there's been a turn. To sort of integrate large very prominent well-known international artists with you know major canadian artists who might not be known as well outside of canada and and uh which i think is has, has is really has become one of the festival's real strengths
1: yeah no sarah you you are absolutely right i mean i had three or four missions when i came uh, and i'm sort of in a way i'm leaving satisfied with i feel i've completed them actually in a way and one of them was exactly that one of them was finally dealing with the smoldering embers of this furnace from which it had been born and i feel very very um i feel proud of this come on let's be straight about it i mean not beat about the bush i feel really proud of this that we now have a very rich range of of relationships of real respect and integrity and constructive collaborative energy with almost all the leading arts organisations in southern Ontario and in Toronto Um, and I mean the relationships with governments were restored we brought several donors back big donors so I feel in a way it's been you know it's been a a busy five years because that's those are big tasks those kind of hearts and minds jobs and I feel very happy that I will be bequeathing it to my successor uh, whoever he or she is um, in a sense that some very tricky heavy lifting has been dispatched in the last five years and I think I I feel I lead personally with lots of of terrific friendships as a
0: human being, but I... As as, as a, you know, still relatively new resident of Toronto, but a uh long-time... Attendee of, of Luminato, I'm quite grateful. I mean, I think I think that's it's it's important for this you know sort of sustainability of of the festival going forward, but also as part of a larger arts ecosystem. And I think right now everybody is is really paying attention to some of these connections and relationships and how they uh, are really going to be a, a necessary resource and foundation for us going forward. So I'm I'm also kind of curious to to hear how Luminato is you know, thinking about what's happened. I mean, obviously you've canceled the festival, but, but, you know, right now you're affected. All of our arts and cultural organizations have been so severely affected. What's, what's the thinking or, you know, I don't know how much you can share, but what's your thinking about kind of planning past, you know, I know you're, you're on your way out, but I, I know that you're, you're doing a lot of, uh, good, careful work in terms of preparing the way. I'm, so, I'm sort of curious how is how is Luminato thinking about the about the future after after COVID?
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not on my way out. I'm leaving this job.
0: <laughs> Which well, fair, the, fair, fair. The distinction.
1: No, I'm le- I'm on my way out of this job. No, you're right. No, no. Look, this is really important stuff. I mean, all those questions are are incredibly profound questions. And I think, um, I mean, I think this has made us all think a lot in quite fundamental terms about what we do. And I'll say, I, I say, I'd like to say two or three things about this because I mean, I've been, you know, this has been really in my mind in the last few months. And when we talked about doing this conversation, this is, this was the point where we started. And I think, for, let me say, firstly, I think there is a real fault line um, opening up in the in the cultural community, and, and I don't know whether it's true in the education community or other uh, economic and social communities in the in the country, but I feel it strongly in the arts community, and it is between um, what I would call a sort of fatalistic, um, very, a sort of negative I don't quite mean negative, but a, a view that sees everything through the darkest possible lens. And it reminds me, as, a, as an English person, it reminds me of the character of Eeyore, the donkey Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, um, who always is p- perpetually, has the darkest possible glasses on to look at anything in the world. And I there are, colleagues of mine who are in that place and it troubles me it troubles me in terms of the cultural future of toronto it troubles me in anthropological terms it troubles me a lot in human terms and i th- i feel very strongly about this i think we have a very particular responsibility in the arts not to do that i think we have a, we as arts leaders and it's true of both artists and arts leaders and in many in many ways i bracket those two together have a real responsibility in in terrible times to be the people who look forward and who find the possibility of hope and energy and recovery in in even the most ruined landscape um, and in the the end of world, it is striking if you think of the end of World War two three of the of the really so three really highly regarded um, European arts festivals. The Edinburgh International Festival, the the Holland Festival, as it's called, though it's entirely an Amsterdam festival, and the Festival of Avignon um, in France. All of those opened in 1947, and they were all, and particularly this is true of Edinburgh, it was very explicitly a, a reaction to Europe having become fragmented, I mean, politically, but then by extension, uh, socially and in human philosophical terms, and it was a very clear statement that the arts were the thing that could bring Europe back together again. And interestingly, actually, during World War II, the British government created something called the Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts in 1940. I mean, the war barely started. And that was appointed to help promote and maintain British culture. And it was chaired by the president of the Board of Education in the government. And after the, after the um, 100% funded by government, and then after the... Uh, end of the first, of the Second World War, it was converted into the Arts Council of Great Britain, which I think was the first major public arts funding body of its kind in the world. I believe, I believe. And this is look, this is terrible. Um, this is terrible, but this is not a nuclear war. This is not bubonic plague, which in the fourteenth century reduced the population of Europe by twenty five percent. This is this is terrible, but it's not it's not terrible by that standard. And it reminds me, that there's always that lovely 19th century um, little political story in Britain of the difference between a disaster and a catastrophe. And I always forget of whom it was said. But somebody said of his political rival that if he fell into the River Thames, this would be a disaster. But if somebody pulled him out again, it would be a catastrophe. And I think that this this is this is a disaster rather than a catastrophe, I think. And I think where it is... I mean where arts leaders typically come from or where they they should come from good ones come from is flexible thinking it is in the nature of the arts because its it's a it 's a business that is entirely defined by creativity that 's what that 's what we are we 're an industry that that deal with the with creation of 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 content of all different kinds and it's it's absolutely defines it should define who we are and how we work that we can bring. A creative and a resourceful dimension to those terrible moments, and a sense that our destiny. There's that wonderful quote by the German artist Gerhard Richter in the the documentation. I think it was for Documenta Seven in Frankfurt uh, when he said, "Art is the highest form of hope." And I I feel very strongly that in this in this journey, that is our our role. And what's Interesting. I mean, we may talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but I'll just say it, leave it hanging in the air, maybe, that um, at the moment when arts are not possible as a live experience, and I mean performing, I mean visual arts as museums and galleries, as well as performing arts, as a as a communal experience, they are not currently possible. Um, and so it's interesting looking at arts and sports. Sports pretty much has gone off the radar. I mean, there isn't, you know, there's not a lot happening in the world of sport, but. In a way, it's an extraordinary thing in the arts. It's like you look—it's like a, you look underground, and there is this teeming world of things that you couldn't imagine uh, two or three months ago. An enormous amount of online activity done with—with—with, with, uh, with, in some cases, great ingenuity and great polish and great imagination. And I think—I mean, we we may talk about this a bit, but I think the—I think the relationship between people who create and deliver culture and the people who, as we used to say, consume it. I think that is profoundly changed by this experience of all these online relationships and I think when we return after the after this present interlude, which you know one hopes won't be a very lengthy interlude I think the way we think about how we relate to our communities and our publics will be will be permanently changed and I perhaps when you to say, when
0: you began one yeah. of the things you you sort of alluded to or you know kind of questioned was the the analogies between the arts sector and and the educational sector and and I actually think in some ways there are some important differences but in this regard there's actually a, a a really kind of you know very similar kind of conversation which is not necessarily the fatalistic versus the more optimistic although I think there's almost always that and certainly around arts education right there's a fear that that people don't understand its value or that It's it's uh, it's not seen as the essential work of the university uh, when we know, in fact, that it's, you know, uh, arts and humanities are really key to any quality education and certainly are really important right now in terms of of making some of these conceptual shifts. But but I'm sort of thinking also about, you know, the shift to online education, um, the thinking about different ways of engaging students and, and different ways of building community. I think one of the fears that I hear from a lot of people uh, on the theater side and also on the theater and performance education side is uh, is this kind of anxiety that oh well, you know will people just want to kind of consume screens or will institutions, Recognize, oh, there are cost savings here, so we're only going to kind of, you know, deliver things in this model. And, and we know that that not everything, you know, like we need a diverse ecosystem, right? So there's a place for online education, just like there's a place for online uh, entertainment and, and art and engagement. But I think there's also, you know, a, a real demand for in-person community for face-to-face. I think many of us are... Are really burning out on looking at our screens and are ready to talk to other humans again. Um, anyway, but I'm sort of thinking about you know when you think about how things might might change. Um, you know, how how do you imagine that change? You know, what 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 kind of world do you do you see us living in? What kind of audience engagements endure? Is it a, a you know a live performance with a media component? Is it Medial works that build in, you know, live physical components. How do you how do you imagine the, the sort of you know if we think about like BCV and ACV, you know, what what's the what what do you expect in the anos coronavirus?
1: Oh my God, there's so many questions there. I, I know. Mean, let me go back. I mean, no, the last ones are interesting, but let me just go back so we don't lose them a little bit sure. more, a little bit further to where you talked about education, because I I see it's in my mind because I was in a really fascinating conversation yesterday. Uh, with one of the leaders of the National Theatre School in Montréal, uh, in Quebec. And what was very interesting about that, about what she said, was that the... So the coronavirus struck, so conventional physical education stopped. So all the students were sent home, and then they, they had to try to create a curriculum and a syllabus that was virtual, and they had to do it very fast, obviously. And she said a very extraordinary and a very profound thing happened and it bears on your second third and fourth questions as well uh, which is that she said that the, the staff at the National Theatre School who are terrific it's a, it's a great great school and it's got some wonderful staff and the staff worked hard to develop thinking about how an online curriculum would work and she said the students were miles ahead of them. And because this, the online world is the world that these, in which these students or this generation largely lives, um, suddenly they felt utterly at home in this and they were comfortable about creating extraordinary kinds of complicated, very plural, multidisciplinary projects in their front rooms with their iPhones um, in ways that the, the staff who had dreamt up this curriculum could, could hardly begin to believe. I mean, what I think... What we always have to remember when we use the I, I think using the adjective digital's a problem because all digital all it means is that information is encoded uh by in in a binary way rather than an analogic way, and the only reason that's interesting that's that's boring that's physics why is it interesting The only reason it's interesting is because you can manipulate information that is binarily coded in ways that you cannot manipulate information that is analogically coded. So what's the digital revolution made possible in all the arts and in the whole of society is, is the manipulation of, of moving and still images, of music, of sound, of, of all kinds of very sophisticated and complicated things that in the analogic era were not possible. Now, it, it's, we are living through a 30-year period of transition in history. And b- before the end of the last century, very few of these things were possible. In, say, 10 years' time, possibly less... These things will be completely ubiquitous, and we will no longer attach the adjective digital to them. That will just simply be how we live. So, we're in this slightly odd transitional world anyway at the moment. But I, but it is. I think what it means for education, and I think this was happening anyway. What I think this will do is is very considerably accelerate this. Is I think the what I would call the old school days, say of the traditional music conservatoire, where you simply learn to play a very complicated piece and it's very difficult you learn to play it very fast and very virtuosically and faster and more virtuosically than the next person and and you do that with with very little regard to two rather important components of life one is your audience and the other is the business structure within which you operate and I you know I'm, I'm so I'm 70 so I remember a lot of you know I, I, I didn't go through a conservatoire training but I very nearly did and a lot of my friends contemporaries did and they would tell me, and, and quite recently it was still true, that the the notion of any kind of dialogue with your audience was re- certainly in the classical world. It's not quite. It's obviously it's not true in jazz and traditional music and it's less true in theatre. But it's particularly true of classical music, which is, I think, in a way, the most pernicious influence in this, in educational terms. Um, it was regarded with almost with distaste that you should re- relate connect in some way with your audience. And even in theatre, you know, if you were um, if you were delivering your great Macbeth or your great Hamlet, you were delivering your great Macbeth, almost like one of those great nineteenth-century actor managers. And the notion that that it would have a connection with the lives and the experiences of the people in front of you, particularly nowadays when we live in a lot of us live in very very diverse and plural cities, a long way from Shakespeare's England, the notion that there's there's a kind of connection and a dialogue there. Uh, at the t- in, the, in the, you know, until t- thirty or forty years ago, in arts education, just wasn't on the map. So now, two things are changing very fast in arts education, uh, and, and actually, I, this, this has been happening for for a while, but it's really going to be accelerated, I think, by this experience. One of them is that we really expect our students to want to be hungry to form a, a relationship of some sorts of conversation with audiences and the publics to which they relate and that obviously leads all out into the world of arts education and outreach and all those other things but it's even true in terms of pure performance Um, and the other thing is that it it, the business of not simply being hired to come and stand on a stage or paint a a picture or create a sculpture but of being expected to understand the economic framework within which you work and look, this isn't, this isn't new. This is a return to the past. I mean, Handel, oh, yeah. the great German, English composer, Handel, you know, he was a canny businessman. You know, he repurposed music for his operas and his orchestral music all the time. Leonardo da Vinci was a superb inventor as well as, you know, as well as an extraordinary artist. Shakespeare, you know, actually was, was arrested at one point for, for, a, for a, a sort of, spec what I would call a kind of speculation, uh, of a grain speculation, you know, was a superb businessman in terms of understanding the economics of, of within which he worked. So it, it's a sort of little bit of a, of a post-war 20th century aberration, I think, that artists were encouraged to think of their education just about developing their craft and not about their relationships with the wider world. And I think one of the many things that is going to come out of this extraordinary period is is art, is, is I mean, it was, that National Theatre School experience was so interesting to me, where that woman was so... Um, ass- two things were interesting. One was that it happened. One thing that the students was way ahead of the, of the teachers. But the other thing, and she's, she was a lovely, intelligent, profound, thoughtful woman, but she was surprised by it. And I thought that, you know, in a way that says it all. That um, that. But it, uh, look, good will come of it. You know, the National Theatre School, I'm sure, to your last question, the National Theatre School will include... Uh, put all kinds of virtual experiences, of online experiences, of digital creation, like that wonderful institution in New York, Three Legged Dog, which consists entirely uh, around the the interface between live and virtual and digital performance.
0: Well, it's it's, it's interesting think- to think. I mean, I just I don't mean to interrupt you, but I you know I'm reflecting. You know, you talk about the the sort of post war period, and of course. Uh, what you're saying about funding was true for certain kinds of cultural institutions and certain kinds of people within them, and you know it's it's it strikes me that as various institutions become more diverse, um, this is also a moment in which we also then shift some of our language around uh, how uh, how artists are responsible for the businesses and the business model in which in which they're working, and, and I, I think this is true. I mean, you know, so I'm the. You know, dean of the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at, at York, and I talk to alumni across creative fields. And one of the things that I hear from a lot of our students is the benefits of combining an arts education with a strong grounding and intersection with technology uh, of a variety of kinds, and that means different things in different fields. Um, but also with this sense of uh, of an awareness of the of the business context. But I think. You know, one of the other things that I would layer on to that is, and you alluded to it earlier, which is this question of the social and the and and the local and the the you know the relational power of the arts and how these happen not just in the abstract but in communities and and i'm it's interesting to think about how models of education that have thought of themselves as attending to a culture that is truly international and also uh, trans-historical, right? I mean, you sort of think about theater training and, and what that's meant, not just around the world, but also, uh, you know, across across history and how that world now comes into space and into proximity of, of a lot of different people in different ways. Um, and yet, I mean, the other part of me thinks and, and really wonders about, and maybe you can talk about this in terms of, of how Luminato and, and other organizations you've worked at have dealt with access, but the, the question of, you know, are we all gonna be, is art only so far, is good art only good in so far as the strength of our Wi-Fi connection, you know, or our internet, you know, and like, and to yeah. what extent are we then, you know, dependent upon some of these, these digital, I mean, cause I think, I think your, your point is well taken in, in terms of students' comfort, but, but also we get into a dangerous thing when we assume everybody has equal access to all of the, you know, the prevailing technologies of any given moment.
1: No, Sarah. That's really uh, I, that's really true. I agree with every word of that. I mean, I think what's one of the one of the things that's really interests me in terms of this stage we're at in terms of cultural development generally is that um, online. I mean, particularly in the intense period of COVID nineteen, the world of online, the virtual world, is is at the moment becoming almost a people's almost their complete cultural experience and it's not that is not just about streaming and if we did this 5 years ago pe- what people would have meant by that would be streaming and performance it isn't just about that it's about what I would say is playing with the boundaries of the real and the virtual worlds and and it, the, the whole nature of the relationship i think with the with the consumption of art is going to be different and i think the whole relationship it, of the consumer and the artist, the creator and the performer of those people will be different. And I think there's a very profound question at the core of that. And it absolutely comes out of this extraordinary explosion of online experiences we're having at the moment, which is, is art necessarily a communal experience? (laughs) Is is that what defines it? And look, you know, if you go back to Greek theatre and way, way, way beyond, I mean, really a very, very long way back in history, um the the business of of cultural creativity if i can de- use describe art in those terms was always the notion was that artists um people who had some particular skill or experience or role in society uh, would present something and there would then be a communal experience that a, a significant number of people would come together to apprehend this and even you know even storytelling in southeast in south asia you know it's still that sense that somebody is telling a story and there will be a group of people around them engaging with it now what is happening now is that the the nature of the community which as it were consumes the art is first of all is being completely changed by the by the ubiquity of to your last point to the ubiquity of online access there's no there's no money involved what somebody said to me today <clears throat> one of the things about online art is for, you do, it, it's free, you don't pay for it, you don't have to book a ticket, you don't have to book a babysitter. And this was the lovely thing, I thought. You get the best seat of the house even if you turn up half, halfway through the show. So, I mean, you know, it's it's an utterly different relationship with the audience. And I'm there's a lot of conversation in my community, in my community of arts leaders, about what are we going to find when we go back after what is quite an extended period? Probably, you know, in most of us in our lives, the longest period of Separation any of us will have experienced between live arts and the public. Yeah. What are we going to experience when we come back? Are we going to experience? Is it? Is will it be business as usual? Will we just get a public who are just happy to be back in the theatre and sit and watch Henry V, or actually have? Will we have redrawn some very profound lines about how and where and with whom people expect to consume cultural experiences? And I, I. You know, I have my own views on that, but I don't think I think most of my colleagues would reckon that we we just don't know those things. And there's a slightly frozen agnostic terror about this which I'm experiencing in some of my colleagues, which is they fear that they're gonna come back to an anthropology and to a to a cultural milieu utterly different from the one that they remember and with which they're experienced. But they don't know what it will be like and how it will be changed, and so they can't begin to think how they will plan for it.
0: Though so that's I, I think that's yeah, and the the planning part of that is is key. And and yet, I mean, I'll just speak as a theater goer, right? Uh, I really I really miss different modes of engagement. Uh, certainly, I hear from a lot of people, rabid consumers of art and others, about um, how tired we are of looking at screens. Um, it's true that some work, for sure, and, and certainly I think, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, in a large international festival, I think this is a really critical. It's like, you know, if I can see it accessibly on my television, right, as one of many offerings, will I choose to go see smaller, out-of-the-way, you know, work, live work that speaks to my community, but consume you know big international fare uh, virtually because it's more enjoyable that way rather than getting on a plane it's also this is raising up big questions about sustainability and international travel in terms of the carbon footprint and and all of that as well but I mean I don't know for me I think I think there is a sense in which in the same way that I'm not terribly worried that you know, all of our classes will be online forever, right? Some will, and, and they'll be really good in that sense. And I, we're working really hard to try and make sure that, that you know, classes delivered that way are, are as excellent. But then there are some things like, you can't hang a light virtually. And, you know, yeah. you, you, there are just certain things you have to do in rooms. And the, and I think there will always be a a, a wonderful space for that.
1: Yeah, no, no, I, look, I think that's right. And I think one of the things anthropological history teaches us is that very often these things end up, the, the polarities that have been introduced by different kinds of discontinuity end up with some kind of synthesis between them. And I, 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 that may be what happens this time. I mean, I think, I mean, again, your questions are wonderful because they're so rich. <laughs> so many things in them. Well, this is the problem I mean, with me... chatting
0: with academics, right? No, We're like, no, I have no, a, no. I have a question then... in 27 parts, you know. and And let me <laughs> yeah, begin let me... by giving you a comment that will set up all the 27 parts.
1: So many. There are so many questions. Oh my God! I don't know where to start. Well, I tell you, uh, here, here's where I'll start. Uh, absolutely, to the business of travelling and sustainability and all of that. Uh, as we're having this conversation, um, colleagues of mine leading major international arts festivals all over the world. A lot of them have cancelled because of COVID nineteen, uh, and some of them are just going dark. Edinburgh, I think, is just going dark and coming back next year. But some of them, and particularly some of the younger and more entrepreneurial ones, are are creating virtual editions, and the first one of those, as we're having this conversation, starts tonight. And it's the Fusebox Festival in Austin, Texas, which is a wonderful, really imaginative, really creative, really entrepreneurial, it has a business model where all the work is free um, in in ticket terms. I mean, it's an extraordinary outfit in in lots of ways, but um, we're watching it because we're considering doing a a virtual uh, edition of Luminato in the uh, week of June when we would have been live. And so we are all, and we're using this metaphor, we are all going, we are all attending the Fusebox Festival in Austin, Texas over this weekend. All of us, we're all going to attend it. And there will be no travel cost involved and there will be no carbon footprint involved and there will be no jet lag involved and there will be no things. And we will just have our supper and when when we've had our supper, we will open our laptops or our phones or whatever and we will be in Austin, Texas engaging with these artists in Austin, Texas. And I think that... there was a very, very extraordinary thing um, which some you may have seen Uh, uh, in the very early days of the lockdown the Berlin Philharmonic Mm. were doing a concert with Simon Rattle of music by Berio Berio and um, uh, Bartók and they they were they were booked in the Philharmonie, and, and they'd sold all the tickets, and it was sold out, and then the lockdown came, and it, and it was pure Simon, you know, absolutely Simon Rattle, um, you, and I can hear him saying it to the management, look, we have to do this concert anyway. So they did it to this completely empty hall, uh, and Simon, as only Simon could do, explained in the most uh, genial terms that what a strange experience this was, and he said, Uh, He said, look, a lot of us who do contemporary music uh, have quite frequently performed to audiences that we like to describe as small and discerning. He said, but there's there's always been somebody there. (laughs) This is the first time I've played in a concert hall without a single person in it. But it does seem, you know, it it does feel to me as if... And I I was making my supper in my my, uh, little house in Toronto, watching Simon and the Berlin Philharmonic do this extraordinary concert. I'm not, you know, the digital concert hall's the stuff of legend, but I'm not previously a signed-up member to it, and they've made it free for this short period. And I think you're right. I think we will go into a mixed economy where there will be sort of three groups of things. There will be stuff that is live that we go to, done, you know, by local people, by local musicians, uh, where you have that... I mean, it'll be a a couple of decades, I think, before technology can really replace... The actual experience of sitting in a room you know in in being surrounded by people and engaging in the communal experience of of taking in an event so we will go back to that because we need it and we're we're communal beings and you know right since the earliest days of cultural history that's how people consume culture so that will happen number one. Uh, Number two I think there will be um, you know this will awaken our minds to the fact that you can see some of the great legendary companies from all over the world without having to get on an aeroplane and i think that when well, you pay for it and why wouldn't you pay for it because it's a it's an expensive commodity to provide but i think more people will sign up to some of these long distance very extraordinary special things and then i think the third group is the very particular thing that will come out of the current experience which is a, a, a much more mixed world of it'll be more informal it'll be it'll be artists, you know, there may be local artists, there may be artists from across the planet, but they may be doing things from their front rooms, they will be doing things in small groups, they may be doing things in very um, particular resonant open air locations or special locations. These are not Berlin Philharmonics, uh, but neither are they sitting in a big concert hall. They're these very sort of piercingly personal experiences that I think a lot of us have had watching some of these uh, internet events in the last four, four to six weeks. And I think it's funny, I, I was in a, a bit of a dust-up with a British cultural writer recently who wrote, uh, you know, in a rather strident way, as only the Brits can, that um, the, all, you know, the stuff on the screen's all very well, but it's all kind of terrible second-rate, second second-class second, second stuff, second-tier stuff. And, you know, we can't wait to get back into the concert halls and turn off our screens. I think he is very profoundly mistaken. Hmm. And I told him that I think that after this experience and when we come back in the fall or whatever it is, we will be living in a mixed economy and i I mean that i don't mean economy in terms of of a fiscal world I mean a mixed economy in a in a, in a sort of human and a social and anthropological kind of economy. I think we will be living in a mixed uh, a mixed anthropology let's say of cultural forms <clears throat> some of which we consume live, some of which we consume. Remotely, as live as great, great defining experiences. Some of which we have windows into the uh, in online virtual creativity of extraordinary people doing very particular and personal things. And I think, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a millennial. I'm 70, for God's sake. I'm not, you know, this is not a, you know, this is not something that young people like and old people can't do. I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely relish this, this combined mixed anthropology and cultural ecology. And I'm loving seeing a new bit of it now. And I'm really looking forward to it all being around me when the live stuff comes back. And I think it will permanently and irrevocably change the relationship that we have, either as artists or as leaders or as consumers, with the very business of culture.
0: I, I think that is a fantastic uh, kind of conclusion to, to, to our chat. Uh, I think these three kind of... Um, modes of engagement right the 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 live the the virtual access to to big performances to live performances and then and then what you describe as these i think this is a wonderful phrase these piercingly personal Uh, you know kind of hyper local but mixed kind of uh, performances for small groups are very discerning I think this makes a lot of sense and in fact we're seeing some of that third group I would describe on um, a lot of alternative methods and 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 uh, media so um, uh, many of our listeners will probably be following along with Jeremy O'Harris the uh, Broadway playwright now self-isolating in london waiting for his uh, his show there perhaps to open um who's been making these kind of amazingly uh, witty and and really fun little tiktok videos um as he's going so i, I think i think you're i think this makes makes a lot of sense and it certainly changes not just the way arts leaders and cultural leaders think about it but but certainly the way those of us in education think about how we start preparing our students to enter into this, this world. And, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for your thoughts and your insights today and, and for all the work you've done with Luminato and for the city over the past five years. And I, I wish you all the best in kind of going forward in the next, the next era uh, of your life there, Anthony. Thanks so much
1: that 's very kind thank you uh, sarah and it's it's a it's a treat always a treat talking to you uh, in any situation at all and I would just say it's my passing my last sentence is that I think for for you and your colleagues in the in the cultural teaching world, working with your students at a profound moment of change and adventure and discovery in the whole landscape of the way culture is consumed there cannot be a more exciting moment to be in the business you're in than right now.
0: I, I, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly topsy-turvy. I'll give you that. Um, anyway, thanks again. I really appreciate it and, and hope you have a, a great rest of your tenure here and, and safe travels forward. Thank you very much. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.